Today's scripture reading is Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Ephesians 6, 10 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may, will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication good morning you know it's coming that time of the year where we're uh, having an event that we've been having for a lot longer than I've been around here our grad night's coming up two weeks on June 2nd we have a couple of graduates from high school that we'll be honoring on that night And uh, one of our new traditions that was started last year is on the morning of grad night uh, to have a special uh, inner assembly to really uh, take note of our kids, our young people. We're going to ask them all, as you did last year, to come and sit down toward the front. Those parents, come and sit with your parents and uh, have a special message on, on that Sunday that John will be bringing to the, for, uh, a message for all of us, obviously, but a message especially that will be uh, focused on our kids, our young people. Uh, and we just look forward to that day. Look forward to having a, a great day thanking God for the children of the congregation, whatever their ages may be. And look forward to that. Plan on, on being here on the 2nd. Those of you with kids, um, we'll have a special section. Your Elton, you can't sit here. Too old, I'm sorry. You have to move back. Uh, but if you bring some of your grandkids, you can sit there with them. But we're going to have a spot up here. I'm not sure where they're going to be, but John will let you know on, on that day. But we're looking forward to that. And uh, make sure you, you'll be with us on, on, that, on the first Sunday of next month. You know, men have been fighting one another since Cain and Abel. But there are certain battles at significant points in history whose outcomes have forever changed and altered the course of future events. One that comes to my mind is the the Norman invasion of 1066. William the Conqueror crosses the English Channel to face off against King Harold, the King of England, at the Battle of Hastings on October the 14th. In defeating King Harold... A wave of change comes to England that continues to this very day because of that battle in 1066. About 900 years later, coming back the other way across that same English Channel, June the 6th, 1944, was another one of those days that began the uh, the liberation of Germany, occupied France, and began to lay the foundation for the great Allied victory on the Western Front, D-Day, a great day in the, in the history of, uh, uh, of standing against the evil that was on the march at that point in time. You know, there are some battles that just, they, they're more than just the sum of their parts. They kind of take on a life of their own and the significance beyond just that battle itself, like D-Day, for example, 
Remember the Alamo. Remember Pearl Harbor. We think of Gettysburg. There are some battles that just take on a life of their own and stand for much more than the battle itself. Biblically speaking, Tim read about a battle from Revelation chapter 19 that's of that same kind of caliber from a spiritual standpoint where the rider on the white horse, faithful and true, comes with his army, a heavenly army of hosts riding behind him on white horses, opposing those who have stood against God and His purposes and His people. A cosmic battle. We have a text today that speaks of a battle that I think at first blush doesn't necessarily appear to be such a big thing. It just seems to be one of many skirmishes that Israel faces in their history. But there's something about this battle that stands out. And I think as we look at it carefully, we'll come to see that it reflects something much more than the day of battle itself. We're in Exodus chapter 17. Israel's crossed the Red Sea. They're marching toward the land of promise. Right now they're on their way to Mount Sinai to enter into covenant with God. God has brought them out of Egypt. When they've gotten... To bitter water, God has made it sweet. When they ran out of food, God brought quail and manna, bread from heaven. When they grew thirsty again, God brought water out of a rock to keep His people alive. But in Exodus chapter 17, they face another kind of threat. They face their very first military threat, their first battle, their first military exploit, recorded in Exodus chapter 17, beginning at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. The the Amalekites attack. The Amalekites have somewhat of an obscure beginning back in the book of Genesis. They're first mentioned in connection with Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. They are an early national nomadic group that wander for the most part the Sinai Peninsula. And eventually they'll uh, make excursions into southern Israel in the future generations. The Amalekites live partly by attacking population groups and plundering them. They've attacked Israel here at Rephidim, the place where the water has come forth from the rock. It's a remote place. It's a defenseless place. And let's be honest, the Israelites are a pretty easy target. These folks have just come out of Egyptian bondage. They've been slaves for generations. It's not like they've ever fought in a war. They don't have weapons. They don't have an army. But God, or Moses calls upon Joshua to try to assemble some kind of force to find someone who has some kind of a weapon who can go out, choose for us men who can take on this enemy. And of course, this is where we first meet Joshua, who will eventually become the great military leader of Israel and the successor of Moses. 
Moses says, tomorrow I'll stand on top of the mountain. And though tomorrow just may be speaking of the next day, tomorrow in Exodus up to this point has a deeper significance, a theological one. When you think back to the plagues, it was God who would say, tomorrow I will visit Egypt. Tomorrow I will do this. And when we come to the word tomorrow in Exodus 17, and Moses saying, tomorrow I'll stand up on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand, we recognize that this is telling us God is going to do something. That Moses is expecting some kind of action on behalf of God. And though it's not stated in the text, it seems pretty clearly implied that it's God who has told Moses to engage this enemy in the first place and to do so by taking his place on top of the hill above the fray that's taking place in the valley below. He goes up on top of the mountain with his brother Aaron and her, who will be told a little bit more about in Exodus 24, who's one of the elders of the people. And as in the midst of the battle we find ourselves looking up. We don't find ourselves looking down at the army. We find ourselves looking up. Looking up to the top of the hill where we find Moses holding up the staff of God. And when Moses holds up the staff of God, Israel prevails. And when his hands tire and the staff is lowered, Amalek prevails. And the correlation between the position of the staff and the fortunes of the army is pretty clear to everyone, to Moses, to Aaron, to her, and no doubt to the Israelites themselves. And the signal, the message of this is clear. The only way the Israelites have any hope for victory is by the power of God. They are not going to win this battle because of the strength of their army. This, this battle is going to be won by God. God will have to fight for His people. And this staff that we see raised in the hand of Moses has been associated with the presence and the power of God throughout this story. It was the staff that that Moses had back at the burning bush. It was the staff that, that wielded power in bringing the plagues on the land of Egypt. It was the staff that was held up at the Red Sea. It was the staff that struck the rock. And now the staff of God is held aloft over the head of Moses. And God will be the one who has to bring the victory. The raising of the staff is essentially, on Moses' part, a confession of faith and a prayer of faith, recognizing that God is sovereign and that if Israel has hope, it will have to be from the hand of God. But everybody's hands gets tired. Try it this afternoon. Just hold your hands up with nothing in them and see how long you can stand there. And Moses has to sit on a rock and and Aaron and her support his arms and keep them steady because in so doing, God provides the victory. And it's strange because at the end of the battle... We haven't seen a sword drawn. We haven't watched anything because the whole time our eyes are still up on top of that mountain on that hill because we know instinctively from what's happening in this story that the power for victory for this battle is on the hill. This battle will be won on the hill, not on the battlefield, not with the soldiers and the implements of war. It is God who is fighting for His people and it's God who's going to bring victory. And so the story concludes in verses 14 to 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 
And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. It's interesting that Moses is told to write this down. It could possibly be that he wrote it down at that point in, in the form that we find it here today in, our, in the Word. But the point is that God wanted a, ri- a written record of his acts of redemption for the people. Not only to have it then, but to be able to look back on this written record and to remember who they are, to shape their identity from the memory of God's power that's been unleashed in their community. And also to learn who their God is and to be reminded how God has directed them and how God has delivered them from their enemies. But what's important kind of on a side note for us is that God makes a choice and he tells us essentially in this text, God makes a choice to communicate his people, to communicate to Israel, to communicate to us essentially as well through words coming from God that will be written down literally by men whom God directs. God chose to communicate to you and me through His Word, written down by those that God selected to write. And as we read those words, we're reminded of who He is and what He's done. Do you notice that God says, make sure Joshua hears this. You write it down and then you recite it to him. Joshua is going to be leading the children of Israel in the next leg of their journey when he, he takes over from, that, from the work of Moses. And as he goes into the promised land, something he's going to be needing to look out for are, the, are these people, the Amalekites. God wants Joshua to know and all the people to know that the Amalekites, by God, have been devoted to his judgment. God has devoted this people to his own judgment and to his own destruction, to to his destruction, and he wants his leaders to know. God says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. I can't think of any other battle in the Old Testament where we find that kind of a statement by God. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. What's going on here that God has such a desire to judge and destroy these people? Well, I I think as we'll see as we look at the the story further and the history between these peoples, that Amalek at this point is trying to stop Israel dead in their tracks. Amalek is trying to stop Israel from ever getting to Mount Sinai, let alone ever getting into the land of Canaan, to stop them, to destroy them. And in so doing, they find themselves standing against and opposing the plan of God that's been promised to the fathers generations before. And in trying to stand against Israel and the salvation of Israel that God is working right now in the Exodus, the Amalekites in a sense are standing against God's future plan through Israel to bring a Messiah to save the nations of the world. If Israel is destroyed at this moment, if the Amalekites succeed and Israel is wiped off the face of the earth, then the eternal purpose of God in Christ through this nation is going to be stopped. And God says, these people are my enemies. These people will be blotted out, their memory from under heaven, because they stand against me. And God will not allow powers to continue that oppose him and his people and his purposes to save. And he pronounces this judgment on them. Moses builds an altar. This is not an altar of sacrifice, but of commemoration. 
We see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob earlier building such altars and naming them as, as moments of God's grace and presence and power. And here, the same thing is happening as Moses builds the altar here at the, at the time of battle to call attention to what God has just done. And Moses gives a name to the, to the altar. The name of the altar is the Lord is my banner. Yahweh is my banner. Jehovah Nisi, you might have in your Bible, perhaps. This banner that Moses speaks of is like a signal pole, a standard that is raised by an army. It becomes a rallying point. The standard, the signal pole is placed and the army rallies around it or they come back and regroup where it's sometimes at the signal pole that an army will gather together for instructions as they go out against their enemies. And Moses names this altar that has been built to commemorate this moment, the Lord is my banner. And in so doing, Moses is equating that staff that he has held in his hand with this signal pole, with this standard that's been raised up as a rallying point for the people of God as they follow him to victory here in the wilderness. And notice the words, a hand upon the throne of God. It's as if Moses is saying, when we, when we held the, the staff aloft, it was as if we were reaching to the very throne of God. We were calling upon the sovereign God to be at work. We were looking to God for power. We were looking to God for deliverance. We were looking to God for victory. And so, God gave them that victory. And then we're told in the text, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Notice the Lord will have war with these people. Not just Israel, the Lord. God is opposed to these people because of this particular moment, what they're trying to do and how they're trying to destroy His people. And we have not seen the last of them because they will continue from generation to generation to be enemies of the people of God. Israel will prevail against them, and one day their memory will be blotted out. I found it interesting. In nine verses, this little story, how much is said about these people and God's, God's heart and mind being completely set against them? Blotting them. Think of all of the battles that Israel will face in the future. There's something going on here that God says what He does about blotting out their memory, about the throne up, up into heaven, about this generational conflict that will never stop until finally victory will come. And when we look at the Scripture and see the relationship between Amalek and the people of God, we get a little bit of an idea of what's going on here. This is just the first time that these two peoples come together. In Exodus 17, the Amalekites attack the Israelites. You may remember not, not too far in the future when the Israelites... Uh, determined that they can't enter the land of Canaan and are destined now to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, some of them get the great idea, well, then let's just go ahead and go in anyway and show God we believe in Him now. And God says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Because I'm not going with you. And they try anyway. And in Numbers 14, at Hormah, they are defeated by the Amalekites. The Amalekites defeat them there. In the book of Deuteronomy, 40 years after our text... Essentially, 
40 years at the time of Moses' addressing the people, he says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came up out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Isn't it amazing how God keeps coming back to this? And 40 years later, Moses is saying, remember what they did 40 years ago. Don't forget these people. Keep after them. And Amalek continues to be a thorn in their side. In the days of Judges, Judges chapter 3, they take over the city of Jericho. In Judges chapter 6, they team up with a group called the Midianites to fight against Israel and to plunder the land during the days of Gideon. And it's Gideon who defeats the Amalekites and the Midianites in Judges chapter 6 and 7. Again, this generational warfare between these two powers. In, in, in the days of King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, God commissioned Saul to fight Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And listen, listen to what he says to him in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. This is 300 years later. 300 years later, God is still saying, I want these people to take, I want you to deal with this. And if you know the story of King Saul, he goes out into battle, he spares King Agag. He takes some of the great spoil of the battle, pretending it's just to honor God with it. And then Samuel, the prophet, comes and the kingdom is ripped out of Saul's hands for this rebellion. But hold on to Saul for just a minute. We'll be back to him. David fights the Amalekites three or four times. We don't have time to go into all the various stories, but there's several of them. It happens to be an Amalekite who brings word to David of the death of King Saul. And the Amalekite lies and says he had killed the king and brings David the crown. And what does David do? He kills the Amalekite. And he fights them throughout his time as king over Israel. In the days of Hezekiah, the Simeonites fight the Amalekites and dispossess them of their land. And we come to the very end of the historical teaching or period of Scripture in the book of Esther and the great conflict in the book of Esther. And the conflict that's brought against God's people by Haman. Haman, a Persian official whom we are told is a descendant of Agag the Amalekite who hates Mordecai the Jew, who is a descendant of Saul and the tribe of Benjamin. And what does Mordecai do but put together a plan that would annihilate every Jew on the face of the earth? God turns tables on Haman, as you know. And it's Mordecai who gains the upper hand. And Mordecai, or Haman and his sons are put to death. One thousand years of conflict. There's going to be war. The Lord will fight these people from generation to generation. Notice that the Lord will fight them. 
The Lord will, these people are opposed to God. When we meet them, we're told that from the very beginning. These are people who oppose God, who do not fear God, and who oppose His purposes. And more than once, they try to annihilate Israel. And because of that, in the Old Testament, they become essentially this archetypal enemy of God's people. They come to stand for something even greater than themselves. As, as people who would, who, would, who would stop the plan of God. These are people who are opposed to the welfare of God's people. They're, suppo- they're, uh, they're opposed to the survival of God's people. And Israel is the very people through whom the Messiah the Savior of the world is going to come. These people are bad news. These people need to be fought. These people need to be defeated. And one day their memory blotted from the face of the earth. What does all of this have to do with us? Why is so much being said? What is it that we're meant to see as we read this initial story of the Amalekites back in Exodus 17. And I think this is one of those battles that just takes on a meaning far beyond the sum of its parts. And then it's a reflection of a spiritual warfare that started then between forces of evil that were working through the Amalekites to try to stop God and His people and forces that have continued since that time. In that way, the Amalekites become a living personification of the evil forces that would do everything they could to stop the plan of God and to destroy the people of God. And that's why they must be destroyed. It's not just about this nation. It's about the power of evil behind this nation that will continue to make warfare against God and His people that must be dealt with, and God will win that victory. So when we go back to Exodus 17 and read this story, it is not just some isolated battle from Israel's past. Israel fights a lot of battles in in the Old Testament. There's something about this one that stands out as God calls out the Amalekites and says what he says about them. This battle comes to stand for something far beyond the sum of its parts. This enemy, the Amalekites, take on a power beyond just their own setting and time and foreshadows all the future efforts of the powers of evil to come against God and His kingdom and His way and to lay waste the people of God. And when we think of it that way, we recognize that it's not just this nation. It is the power behind this nation. It is the evil powers, the spiritual powers behind the Amalekites who continue to try to destroy and undermine the plan of God that we're supposed to have our attention drawn to. So that we go back to this initial battle in Exodus chapter 17, and it's really just an early manifestation of a later battle, a grander battle, the cosmic battle between God and the forces of evil. A battle that will not be won until first our Lord dies on the cross to unmask these powers and eventually returns to destroy them forever. These are the perpetual enemies that are at war with God from generation to generation. The powers of evil 
continue to fight against God. But one day, when the Lord returns, they will be blotted out forever. The powers of evil met their initial destruction at the cross and the empty tomb and will forever be destroyed when our Lord returns. So, what for us? The battle of Amalek in Exodus 17 helps us look at our battles that we face in the context of the greater spiritual warfare that takes place place continually between God and the powers of evil. We face enemies that are against us. You have enemies that are against you. Andy read about those powers a few moments ago from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. These powers are real. They're terrible. They're evil. They're wicked. They live in the heavenly realms and they come after you. These powers want to destroy anything that God is attempting to do. And right now that puts you in their crosshairs and me. You and I face attack from these powers every day of our lives. Not in some sort of theoretical way. Truly, factually, you and I come under the attack of these powers every day of our lives. And they attack us in so many different ways. Sometimes, when, like Israel, we get tired and weary and we're traveling. We're just kind of going through life and we get worn down. And it looks like maybe we're an easy target and Satan sends something against us in our life. But every time we face temptation, every time you and I have that thought in our head to do something or to say something that we ought not to do, it are these powers that are working at us to try to destroy us, to bring us down, to defeat us however they can. We're living in a time where compromise is such a great tool of the powers of evil because we live in a time where it's becoming less and less acceptable by the general culture to have the kind of belief and faith that we have and lifestyle that we have in the kingdom of God. And Satan does whatever he can to kind of lead us down that pathway to compromise, to make less of it, not to make such a big deal about it, not to stand out so much, not to draw attention to ourselves by the things that do make us different. plant seeds of doubt in our hearts. If Satan can get you or I to doubt the goodness of God or to doubt the power of God, to doubt His love, to doubt His involvement in our lives or something that's happening and and begin to doubt Him and not have the trust in Him that we ought to. This is just another way that we come under attack to discourage us. What we're talking about today can just be so theoretical. I can just get so caught up in Amalek and Israel, let's be honest, that I could just talk about that forever. But the truth of the matter is this. Every day, in the quiet of your heart, every day, there is a battle. And there are powers that are coming to bear over you. There is the power of God who longs to save you and redeem you and give you victory and blessing and life. And there is a power of evil that would seek to destroy you, to lead you into sin, to discourage you, to destroy your credibility as a follower of Christ, 
to do anything possible to see that you are damned, that God loses you. And they throw those evil fists in God's face to show that they've won some victory against Him. Every time we make a decision, every time we decide, am I going to respond in anger or am I going to be meek? Every time we, we decide, what kind of attitude am I going to have in this? Am I going to act and do something or am I going to stand back and do nothing? Am I going to finally talk to that person about Jesus or I'm going to allow Satan to, to control me with fear in my heart? I'm never going to open up my mouth. This is going on every day. It's real. It's every day in your heart and mine, over and over again. And there's some things where Satan's been successful and he keeps coming back at us and back at us. And there are other things where just sometimes out of the blue we'll face temptations that we had not expected. The point is, you and I can't defeat this enemy. You and I cannot stand up to the spiritual Amalekites in the universe. We cannot do it. Satan is more powerful than you or me. We're hopeless. And yet, God calls us to stand up and to fight. To put on the armor and to go out and engage the enemy and to stand. And I'm thinking of this in terms of the story in Exodus 17. We know, we know that Israel cannot defeat the Amalekites. That's been very clearly made known to us in the story. And there are times, you know, when for whatever purpose he has, God will take an enemy that Israel's facing and just poof, they're just gone. Nobody even raises a sword. I mean, there's not a drop of blood spilled. God just brings, you know, some whatever and, and the people are just gone. But God sends Israel out into this battle. And he knows they can't win. He knows they can't defeat this army. But he sends them out anyway. That they may look to him. That they may trust him. That they may lift up their hands to him. And that God may fight for his people. And that's what God does for us. We can't stand against these evil powers. Are you kidding me? Me? But God says, Richard, I want you to go out there and stand in the full armor I'm providing you. And realize that I'm fighting this battle for you. But you've got to get out there. You've got to engage. You've got to put on the belt of truth. You've got to look to the lies and the deceit of Satan in your heart and in your world. The things that he tells you that are just not. You've got to stand in the truth. You've got to have the truth around you. And wear the breastplate of righteousness to stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That righteousness that is ours by faith. And then to to determine to live out the best we can in that reality of righteousness, to be that righteous people, to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace so we can stand our ground in the Word of God and we can take back territory that's been lost by the onslaught of Satan, that we wear the helmet of salvation to remind us who we are, that we're saved, that we belong to God, that we take up the shield of faith with which we extinguish every, every attempt of Satan against us. The faith in God and in His promises. Faith in the working of the Holy Spirit. Faith that God will answer our prayers and give us victory. And we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, so that Satan will flee before the words of God Himself. And we pray. And we pray at all times with all kinds of prayer and supplication. We pray. We pray to God for the victory. Because we know We know that the victory cannot be won on the battlefield by us.
but we know that the victory has been won on the hill. The victory's already been won on the hill. We didn't win the victory. The Lord Jesus Christ won the victory. As Paul writes in Colossians 2, He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them by His cross. The victory is won on the hill, not by us. The cross is the hill where our battle has been won. The cross of Jesus Christ is our banner. It is our signal pole. It is where you and I go and we lift up our arms and our hands and our hearts and our prayers to God and recognize that we have no power to stand against the enemy, but that he has all power and strength. We sang a few moments ago, he raised up a standard, the power of his blood. That's the cross. That's the signal pole. That's our rallying point for the church to remember what Christ has done for us. And we come before confessing our faith and praying in faith for the victory that God gives. The cross is our rallying point. We meet around the cross every Sunday. That's what we're doing here today. We're coming to the cross. We share a memorial meal. That's the altar that we remember this great act of redemption from. And we come here, even now, what are we doing? We're receiving instructions for the battle at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Coming together, remember what God's done for us and the victory that we have in Christ. This is where we remember every week. This is where we get our marching orders from God Himself and from His Word. It is all beneath the banner of the cross. The Lord is my banner. The cross of Christ is our banner. And God has written these truths down in a book. He's written them down here for us so that we might know them, so that we can understand who He is, what He's done for us, so we can hide these words in our hearts to stand up against the enemies that we face. This is where we receive our instructions from God. The words that shape us, that remind us who we are, to tell us what our lives are about and point to the power of God to give us victory. Because even though our enemy continues to oppose us from generation to generation, through the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, one day the memory of these enemies will be blotted out from under heaven forever. Because the Lord fights for His people. It's the Lord who gets this victory. It's the Lord who overcomes these powers. And until that day, let us rally around the cross. Let us come together and confess each week, the Lord is our banner. He is our rallying point. To come to the cross and lift up our hearts and our lives to God and say, we look to you as you rule over us, that your power, that your will may be done in our lives. And as we do that, brothers and sisters, we go out to engage the enemy. We're going to be doing that every day this week. We're going to go out. And we go out today saying, you're not going to get an inch of territory in my life. You are not going to make any inroads in my life this week because I am depending upon God. I'm listening to His Word. I'm following His instructions. I'm standing my ground. With the help of God, there will be victory in my life. 
Because God has already won that victory. God will fight for us. And if you're not a part of that group of people, that army that belongs to God through Jesus Christ, all we can do today is say, and it's, it's, is come to the cross. Come to the cross. That's our rallying point. Come to the cross. And there confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Confess that He is the Savior of the world. And bow before Him, accepting by faith the forgiveness of sins and the power for victory that He gives you there through His blood. Die with Him. Rise with Him through your faith in His death and resurrection and in your baptism. To begin to walk as a follower of Christ, as you face the enemy each day. That little obscure story back in Exodus 17 just seems to be a little story of a battle. Is a reminder of what is at the heart of your existence and mine and the battle that goes on today. May we be encouraged... to rally around the cross, to find strength, to determine that we'll stand, that Satan will not make inroads in our lives by the power of Christ. Let's go out as soldiers proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ and salvation, as soldiers in the spiritual army of God. And we do so beneath the banner of the cross of Jesus Christ. If you need to respond to him, please come to the Lord Jesus. Let's stand as we sing.